This week on the show, it's a fine line between pleasure and a podcast. podcast to tell in the dark. I am John Charles Holmes, and with me today is my co-host, Barb. Hi, this is Barbara Dieselbrain. And we have a special friend with us today, awesome, all-around awesome person, Greg. Hello, I'm Greg. Yes, and uh, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you on. This is our, um, this is our third episode. Um, I know you're always. I know you're a big horror head, just like uh, me and Barb. So I've been very excited to get you on for one of these. I love talking about horror, and yeah, I love yelling. <laughs> well, good. We're gonna have a good time today because, uh, well, as a as kind of a, you can be evidenced by our mentioning of horror and name of this podcast. This is a podcast all about horror, um, in which we just kind of. Uh, explore horror uh, at this point mostly movies and just kind of uh watch discuss discover and just laugh and learn and love along the way and <laughs> this week uh we got a lot of loving in because we watched the seminal favorite uh hellraiser i fucking love this movie holy goddamn shit like i i, I was the one who recommended it this week and because i feel like i felt like it was something that jc was going to love as well, knowing JC's tastes. And from the sound of it, when we were talking a little before recording, sounds like I was right. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've already talked about in the past couple episodes, anytime uh, body horrors come up, and uh, just watching this one immediately, the intersection between uh, this very horny house and God, lots sorry. of flesh being torn apart. I was just thinking, man, it's. I see why Barb likes this one so much. Mm-hmm. Hellraiser is my favorite Lifetime original movie. <laughs> That's actually what I mean, it is. Oh, fuck, you're right. I mean, it totally is. I mean, like, it's just about, like, the most hellish booty call on earth. I love it. I loved it so much. This this was my first time watching it, and I was, I was kind of into the very, like, oddly domestic tone that this movie has yeah something i like about this movie um that sometimes with movies i can feel like it can be hard to find is um it has such a small intimate scope like despite the fact that it has it is about de- you know, literal demons um you know f- fucking up people essentially um you would think with something like that the scope would be kind of big you know almost like uh like the exorcist and stuff like that where you've got you know you're dealing mm. with the literal devil and shit like that but oh. like pazuzu at least yeah Pazu- oh yeah pazuzu um but like this is just this really intimate little thing you you spend the vast majority of this movie in this one really small house to be honest and i feel like this is one of those horror locations that like i feel like i could map out on a piece of paper accurately just from memory you see it's funny you call it small because i'm pretty sure this house had like three or four floors to it <laughs> something about it feels like like it's, I, don't, I don't know something about the way it's constructed or the way it's shot like it's not a i guess when i say small it's not tiny lord knows i've lived in smaller but like it something about it feels oddly um what's the word uh, claustrophobic. Yes, something about it is oddly claustrophobic, and I don't know whether that's part of whether that is um, the way the shots are framed or what. But it does have a weird. It feels. It's almost like it, it. It is smaller on the inside than it looks like it should be. Yeah, I get like it seems huge on the outside, but we really only see three or four rooms. Yeah, like what? Like what we see? We see the stairwell. We see the stairwell with shoddy craftsmanship so there's nails sticking out of every wall i guess you see a <laughs> tiny bathroom 
we see the bedroom, which is actually kind of big for a bedroom, and then we see just this empty hell room that, quite frankly, I'm surprised that uh, that the, the the dad of the household, Larry, that he never seemed to check in quite the same way that Julia did. Yeah, you'd think that would be fucking catnip for, like, a dad to, like, to turn into his summer project or something. He really just, like, doesn't have a personality, though. <laughs> no, he, he doesn't. I mean, that, that's that's what I was saying, was that uh, he just kind of exists to get sliced up a little bit, and for, by the end of the movie, Frank to just literally wear, like, a suit of skin. And, which, by the way, reminds me as well, um, content warning for this movie, uh, this is a graphically violent movie. Um, yeah, and a, and a very. So. In a very 1980s way, where like there's there's a lot of uh there's 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 a lot of uh bodily harm and like just literal capital B capital H body horror, but it's the 80s, so it's very clear you're watching like fish hooks going through some latex with uh with like squibs underneath. But if you're squeamish about uh sharp things going into skin and pulling people around, uh this is this is definitely a very 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 gruesome one. <laughs> If you think if you think the um, the visual of a literal man just having no skin at all and being in that state for a significant chunk of screen time, um, yeah, might not be your thing. It, oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, I was gonna say it looks so good though. It aged, <laughs> like, it aged so good. Yeah, like it's almost like I kind of like. Uh, I made a note of this, but the blood is like, it doesn't look like real blood. It's super syrupy, but I kind of like it more than it, like, if it was realistic. It's mm-hmm. kind of like Jimmy Tears, but with blood. <laughs> yeah, like, one thing, I'll, one thing I really like is um, after fucking Bland Dad Mick, what's his face, when he gets Larry, cut, Larry, the blandest dad name of all. His yeah, well, let's call him Larry. After Larry cuts his hand and, you know, he comes up to Julia and he's showing it off and he's bleeding everywhere. I like those shots where it's showing, where like it's emphasizing it dripping on the ground and it's a little bit slow-mo. But there's something about just how fucking wet this blood is. It's yeah. very viscous. Like, it, it, it looks wet. It looks like... It, it looks like something you want to fucking slurp up. That's how fucking wet this shit is. I love it. <laughs> and I, I love, like, the reverse shot of um, the blood, the, the floor seeping up this blood and, and drinking it to, like, a literal beating heart under the floorboards. Oh, God. That, uh, that whole sequence. That I feel like that's the sequence where somebody watching the movie is going to decide whether this is a movie for them or not. Um, I know when I first watched for the first time, when I got to that scene with, um, Frank essentially unbirthing from nothing, Mm -hmm. um, that was, like, I fell in love and my interest stayed at, like, at at the peak for the rest of the movie. That was the point where I was like, okay, all right, okay. Yeah, I, I immediately got the same energy as uh, your animations from that scene. <laughs> so this was actually my first time watching this movie. So this was all new to me, and I also was pretty much uh, sold on it the second the skeleton climbed out of the floor. And I know for Barb, um, you've already said this before, this is one of your favorites. I assume you've seen it multiple times. Um, yes, I'd seen it multiple times. Um, I don't know what number this is for me. Not, I'm not saying like I'm in the double digits or anything, but it's definitely been a few times. Uh, how about you, Greg? Uh, what's what's your relationship with this one? Uh, this is my second time watching it. I rewatched it for the show. Um, it's just really solid. Like it's such a good self-contained story mm-hmm. that I, I don't think I like it as much as you, Barb. Not like saying I dislike it, but I'm just like. <laughs> Yeah, like, this is a good movie. Like, it's fine. Like, I, I usually have an aversion to rewatching things, but rewatching it, I'm like, nah, this is just like an episode of The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Sure. You know what? No, that's, like, that's a good comparison. I like that. Yeah, The Twilight Zone felt perfect because, um, again, this is my first time watching this movie, but I was already familiar, very familiar with the character of Pinhead and the Cenobites. <laughs> and so um, I was actually kind of surprised to see how little they showed up. And then I kind of figured out, like, 
oh, okay, this story isn't about, like, the story of the worst day ever for the Cenobites or this guy. It was like, well, the Cenobites are these forces that make their way into the lives of these people that are just too horny for their own good, and they just... <laughs> move in and out of people's lives and this is just the life that they move into for the span of like a week or something like there was something i really really liked about that but specifically the scope of the movie just being like like literally when the cenobites show up later in the movie they they have this attitude that this is just a job for them <laughs> and they they literally have anywhere else better to be like they literally show up um they show up and uh, Larry's daughter Kirsty is uh she's freaking out and she's screaming her head off and they're just like we all the Cenobites they're just like I don't want you here and they're just like oh no the tears there's such a waste of good suffering <laughs> you opened the box and so we came I okay so um we haven't mentioned it on the podcast yet but um. I went and actually read the short story this film was based off of um, because I one I read that it was based off a short story, and two, you know, I wanted to get a little more perspective from from a movie that I loved, and um, a lot of that personality in the Cenobites remains in the original, um, which isn't surprising. Was written by the same dude. Um, but one thing that was a little bit expanded upon was that um, they're actually even more bureauc- like explicitly bureaucratic in the original short story. Like um, mm. when Christie summons them, like uh, Pinhead comes out. Well, actually, it's not even referred to as Pinhead, but um, a Cenobite. But- refer to him as Butterball in the book. No, <laughs> no, they. Um, they just they just call them the Cenobites in the book for the most part, um, but you know the, for all intents and purposes, Pinhead, um, you know, appears before Christie, um, says all the stuff that says in the movie, but also says like, "Oh, you did you didn't solve it on purpose? That wasn't on purpose." And Christie's like, "Yeah, no, wasn't on purpose." And the Cenobites are just like, "Oh, here's the thing." <laughs> Like, it was actually shockingly mundane, and I loved that. Like, like the the rule was that, like, essentially the book... The, not the book, but the puzzle box acted kind of like a cat of nine tails. You know, once you... Once it's opened, they have to act upon it in order to go back home. Uh, okay. I feel like that wasn't super clear in the movie. I I, I definitely got this idea. They, they definitely expressed, like... You know, oh, uh, you open this puzzle box, we show up, uh, we give you so much pain, it becomes pleasure, then we take your soul, and then we can go back to hell. And it was this exchange of, like, well, we gotta take somebody's soul to hell. I, we don't care whose, it's gotta be somebody's, then we'll go. Yeah, the, the bureaucratic aspect to them, I think, really lends them a particularly singular flavor that other just you know, ooky spooky demons don't have. I don't know. It's something I like about them a lot. Yeah, one thing I love about them is that they're very, like, you have to agree, you know? Like, they, <laughs> they need, like, verbal consent for them to do anything. Like, they're they're not just, like, slasher villains. They're kind of, like, you're essentially making a deal with the devil, but they're not trying to trick you. It, everything is laid out on the table for them. Yeah, this is a, this is a surprisingly like S and M positive movie. I mean, there was this element of Frank having this like real creepy like sexual history, but his like so Julia is married to Larry, and Larry is the brother of Frank. But Frank and Julia had a thing on the side, and what they have is almost entirely uh uh consensual there's not this element of frank having to force himself upon julia or or the demon showing up and they force these things upon you though yeah yeah they don't force things upon you because if you're opening the puzzle box you probably bought it from some creepy man overseas because you're looking for a good time it is a contract the puzzle box isn't isn't of itself a contract and i wasn't I wasn't prepared for the energy of this movie to be as bureaucratic and just 
yeah, oddly consensual as it is, <laughs> I was ready for it to just kind of be these monsters show up and they're coming for you. It's you showed up because you asked them to be here and they're not going home till they get paid. Yeah, it, it lends them a very unique kind of um, anxiety to them as a, as a monster, and I really love. I adore their designs. Like, I think one yeah. of the first things... I was about to say, like, do you have a... What's what's everybody's favorite Cenobite? My favorite Cenobite is um, not Nemesis. Oh, yeah, I love that guy. <laughs> love oh, the, the, love the, this the, guy! The the teeth dude, yeah. I like, <laughs> I like what he's chattering. There is like, no like... way Capcom did not fucking watch this movie and was taking fucking notes. Like, they saw and... that guy and they were like... Hold on a sec. I mean, for how much Resident Evil kind of explicitly just copies from other movies, I am absolutely certain that that Cenobite had to be a huge influence on the look of Nemesis, because oh, it has that just skin stretched over the skull, except for, like, a hole cut where the lips should be. Fun fact from the um, lore of the Cenobites, that particular one is a little kid, actually. Aww. Aww. I think I think we get that we get like some sort of like whimsy to that one. <laughs> I, I, so are they just like one big happy family? Just like you know, like Pinhead's the the dad, and the 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 throat one's the mom, and I guess Butterball's the, the throat the, one's the, my the mom. That's for damn sure. <laughs> I do. So so I'm guessing Butterball's not in the book, yeah. Um, actually, no. Butterball's definitely in the book. Yeah. So. There's there's this one Cenobite in the movie that the best way to describe it is that it think of the word butterball and imagine what kind of person would f- would fill that name and you have butterball. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah. Um, I guess like just looking at the looking at the the movie as a whole, though. Um, I def like I said I definitely really enjoyed the the I guess like the story of this movie where essentially it felt like it kind of twisted between like three different horror movies like you have the first part of this movie which is uh the story of Frank who was dragged to hell by these Cenobites is trying to get back and requires human blood to do it and that's where I think you kind of get the most uh body horror element of it it's a lot of learning about how the puzzle box work box works how frank was literally torn to shreds um watching him come back starting from like his bones up to his innards to his muscles to his nerves to his skin like watching him come back as this person piece by piece then you have this middle part in which uh frank requires more of this blood to be able to return back to a full flesh and form he needs and the juice it's, it's at this point that the movie kind of becomes this weird um kind of like this alfred hitchcock slasher movie in which uh movie. yeah julia just becomes this uh this black widow figure who's just luring in lonely men and then bashing their heads in with hammers as soon as she gets them up to frank's room another teeny tiny little difference that stuck out to me for some reason when I was reading the book was um, in the movie with that first guy that she fucking lures in um, in the movie he says just kind of apropos of nothing um, I get lonely sometimes and in the book that line actually belonged to Julia mm-hmm. and I, I think I think switching those lines made sense because I think it makes that particular guy more pathetic frankly yeah no i i love like it just turns into this like steamy illicit like ooh, like she's seduced by this life of crime she's gonna murder people so she can be with like this hot dude um and then i also like how they really like you know like this like pile of slime is just like hey julia kill people for me (laughs) she's like all right like we don't we don't learn any of the lore until like an hour in. Yeah, again, like I was watching the clock because I was like, that's how I actually learned that thing's name was Butterball because I was watching <laughs> watching this on Amazon and when you pause your movies on Amazon, it brings up like, ah, well, here's the name of the characters and the actors who are playing them and a and a Butterball's name in quotations. It was like quote unquote Butterball Cenobite and it was like, ah, 
<laughs> right? But um, yeah, like uh, by the time by the time you get to uh, the last third of the movie with uh, Kirstie as kind of like the 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 final girl of this movie escaping from the horrors of the Cenobites and Frank. Um, there was probably about 15 minutes left in the movie, which I just absolutely did not see coming. Um, I was surprised this was like a tight hour and a half movie, but this is long before that era of like two and a half long movies. You have to make a day to go to the theater to see. So that was, that was nice to see. But I, again, I was just kind of surprised by how domestic the story was. And I think I really did like that. Like I, I did love watching uh, Julia get, used to killing people because the first time she does it she's she's so shooken up by it and she's she, she she's struggling to wash off the blood she's looking at herself in the mirror and by the second or third time she's just going straight to the hammer right away mm-hmm. yeah i think the movie is so much stronger for like i i kind of wish it was one of those movies where they didn't advertise the Cenobites at all like they're not on the poster or anything because they only appear like 60-70 minutes into this 90 minute movie and I think that's it. That's so much better than them being introduced at the start I, th- I think I agree with that especially because honest to god Frank carries the movie on his own perfectly well he's the villain like the Cenobites are just kind of hanging out they're just like a part of the world but Frank is the antagonist yeah, it's 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 quite the whirlwind they go on with. They take you on with Frank because, like, the first time you see him, he's just in this pure elephant man mode where uh, Julia comes upstairs and she goes in this room and she sees him. And she's like, oh, my God. And he's like, don't look at me. And she's like, okay. And he's like, ah, I haven't been turned into a monster. Look at me. She's like, what? And he goes, don't look at me. And she's like, okay. <laughs> but he, he goes from being this very pitiful figure and the more he starts coming back more and more, he just is surging with this confidence where he 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 does demand to touch Julia and he's like menacingly just slicing up rats to threaten people and like send a message. <laughs> that was a meaty fucking rat he cut into. Yeah, it was all it was all uh it was all muscle and sinew. <laughs> but I I loved the effects on Frank throughout the movie um it just when he gets to the point where he is just all just blood man man of blood near the end there um i really like how at that point he does just put on normal clothes and he's just wearing clothes so you have this bloody bloody man wearing these normal clothes making a mess out of them mind you but they're still just these very average clothes he's wearing even wearing a suit at one point if i recall and i don't know there's just something very macabre and satisfying about that aesthetic yeah it's a, it's a very it's a very dapper look this uh this man with no skin still wearing clothes um i don't know it it gives me like a real kind of like like it sounds kind of dorky but a real like a uh, watchman or the tick kind of vibe of just here's this very freakish unusual unrealistic person just again living this very mundane very domestic life but you know he's he's drawing julia into like this more exciting world like i i love how how aloof she is on the couch with uh with larry watching uh <laughs> boxing and she just doesn't give a shit about him anymore like she can't at first she can't fathom the idea of having to murder him to get more blood for frank but at this point she's pretty much looking for an excuse to do it yeah and book julia hates larry even fucking more just yeah, they, hates larry yeah they they gave us plenty good reason to despise larry he's he's just very he's very he's very bland he's telling like very off-color jokes at dinner and stuff um he's dumb enough moving a mattress to get his hand sliced open by a nail i mean come on weak skinned man I think the thing with Larry is that like he I don't I don't dislike him it's just that he he's so content in what is depicted as like this really mediocre unsatisfying marriage and life and that to the point where like the people around him are actively like trying to go to hell <laughs> like, <laughs> like I need to spice up my life let me summon 
like you know these hellish demons and we can finally start living a life it's like five tips to spice up your uh, bed life step one yeah. summon a cenobite step two fish hooks it's fine <laughs> step three just get rid of the skin nothing between you and her Step four, nothing tells your man that uh, you really want him out like slicing a rat in half while staring him straight in the eyes. Step five, butterball. Oh, God. So, I hate that <laughs> <laughs> Just yucky. I, I, I liked him. There was something, he seemed kind of like, I don't know, he seemed kind of cute like a dog. <laughs> Can't relate. Like, like him and the like. Like, okay, like, I generally got the feeling that Pinhead and the lady, like, I got the feeling, okay, Pinhead, the lady, and then that, that, that big worm dude, those guys are freaks, like, the, <laughs> they've been in, they've been in the game for so long that the, that the, the, the passion, the spark is gone from the work. That's fine. Half is the best of us. I got the feeling that, that the teeth guy and Butterball are just... I don't know, they, they seem, I guess like they have that air of being young and they just enjoy what they're doing. Like, they don't feel like they're actually hurting anybody. They're just having a good time. They don't know any better. So, oh, Butterball's I mean, still sporting a half-chub. Let's be clear. <laughs> oh, God. No, I was, I was going to say that uh, I think, I didn't read the entire novella, but I skimmed some of it. And you get it in the movie, too, but they're not like trying. I, I don't know how to say this. Like, they're not like... They've, they've, like, lost the ability to distinguish between pleasure and pain. It's not like they're, like, trying to necessarily torture those people. It's just that, like, their version of, like, experience, you know, sensory overload is, like, actually hellish torture to humans. Yeah, it's... like, in, in the book, when um, Frank does get taken by them um, at the very beginning, when he uh, opens the... the uh... The, the puzzle cube, the puzzle cube. Yeah, when he opens yeah. the puzzle cube, um, he, the book goes into significantly more detail about exactly what happens, and a significant chunk of it is not physical torture. There's like a lot of what is described within the novella, and probably would I understand why they cut because it's a little harder to depict on film. Interestingly enough. But a lot of it was, like what Greg was saying, just complete sensory overload. Like, to the point of, like, every single sense being turned up to the point of pain. Having literally every memory Frank ever had playing all at the same time. To, like, he, he tries to drown it all, like, he tries to drown it all out by, like, jerking himself off and hoping that he'll just fucking go back to normal after rubbing one out. That don't work. What a wild strategy. <laughs> I, listen, when I'm threatened, I whip it out too. That's just how it goes. God. I, think, I think he had, like, a little bit of that in the movie when he's um, taking a drag of that cigarette and he has that line about, um, oh, I can taste it. It's been so long since I've tasted anything. Like... You get a little bit of, like, that psychological breakdown going, but, I mean, thinking about it right now, I do kind of like this parallel of, um, this very, this very normal life that Julia and Larry have, where there's a lot to be tired of in that form of love, just because they've been stuck in it for so long, and on the other side of things, you do have the Cenobites, where it's, it's... It's a longing for a sensation so strong that the only thing that elicits that emotion anymore is a feeling of pain that strong. And the idea that these people who have been living this their entire lives are also kind of bored and tired of it in the exact same way. That's a really fun connection. I actually hadn't put too much thought into that one. Yeah. It's a, I think it's a fun depiction of hell and demons where like you're complicit in kind of your punishment like you're actively seeking these guys out like it, it's not like you're punished after you die it's like no i think i'm gonna go looking for this while i'm alive because this is what i want now yeah i mean that whole line about um oh to some were angels and to some were, were demons and i mean it's it's really clear just from that puzzle box that just people seek that out but 
I don't know. A part of me was just kind of wondering if it was this thing where people know what they're getting into with the Cenobites, or they literally were just kind of catfished into it for whatever reason. I mean, I'll, I'll say this much. Um, obviously, there's a certain amount of catfishing going on, because, like, Frank kind of makes it obvious, and it's even more explicit in the book, that, like, Frank th- Frank basically thought that when he solved this puzzle box, he was just going to get a mountain of pussy. That's what he thought he was going to fucking get. And technically at least in the book he did um to the point where it to, <laughs> okay to, no, go to, on to the point where it no longer registered as anything and then they moved on to pain <laughs> so like they were like okay you're all fucked out all right get the hooks boys within the lore of the Cenobites and of Hellraiser um like later movies and stuff it is made obvious that the Cenobites they are not capital D demons they were people they are people um they were all human beings at one point so like i think a little bit of what you're getting into of like you know this is something that some people genuinely seek out and actually like end up enjoying and sticking with is true like some people open that puzzle box and they find something that it turns out they really liked as fucked up as it is yeah i i definitely got the the feeling from the cenobites designs that um there's this element of their kind of eternally traps in their own personal vices and desires like I mean, like it's. I mean, like the way they're depicted is is. I mean, it's 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 all it's very it's very like phallic Georgia O'Keeffe imagery all over them. Basically, like it's very clear that they've they've become they basically embodied the exact things that like they've imbibed themselves for for ages. I suppose I don't know. Is, does that make any sense? I don't know if that's something that the the book goes into a little bit more. Um, I'm not entirely sure what you mean. Can you elaborate? I mean, are you trying to say that like um, it's sort of their appearances kind of matches what they've gotten into, like sort of personalized to what they've been through, what they seek out? Yeah, that's, um, like, that's what I that's what I mean. I personally did not notice um, Hellraiser one and two really digging into that. Um, Hellraiser three hit on it a little bit with that, um, but overall, I would say that it's not quite so explicit with them it really just does kind of seem like oh hey this is what they ended up finding <laughs> pleasurable in, uh, after years cool. and years here that's fair um, yeah, I, I, I imagine that the sequels probably go a bit more into like uh, Jason-ifying the, the Cenobites a bit more yeah like um, y- y'all were talking about how this movie really did not feature the Cenobites very much and um I, I said this to JC earlier today and that was that um this uh Hellraiser 2 is very much like um aliens to this movie's alien um in terms of scope in terms of exploring the background and physiology and everything of the Cenobites and then Hellraiser 3 which is the farthest I've gone um, is like just shy of Gremlins 2 <laughs> oh god in a very Wait. very fun way now legit don't throw it around lightly because if you call a movie like Gremlins 2 that's a very bold claim are you telling me that, that, that Hellraiser 3 is that off the rails well, uh, no, I'm, I'm thinking about this for. Let me think it over for a sec. Okay, I, 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 I would say that Hellraiser three is. I, I would say that Hellraiser three does not go into outright self parody to the same degree. So yeah, I, I, I guess you would say yeah, it's not um, a Gremlins two, but it does. It is the one where things get much. They don't get less violent, but things do get a little less. A little more goofy at times but not in a bad way in a way that i still found really entertaining but it kind of it probably starts verging more into like slasher territory i'm guessing yeah ah 
Okay, to be fair, I haven't seen it for like a year now, so I'm a little hazy on the details. But I just, I just remember it being a little more, um, kind of, not lighthearted, but a little more playful with what it was doing. If that makes mm-hmm. sense, um, not yeah. necessarily less violent or less dark or what have you, but just a little more of playing in the space. Okay, I mean, I'm. I am sure we will probably uh, get to those at some point because I, I would not mind diving a bit deeper into um, some of the other movies because I think this movie goes like what like four sequels deep I think there's there's a lot of them I it goes a lot of sequels deep I've only gone three I miss that like the old horror movie trend of the sequel just being a completely different genre. <laughs> I mean, what we need is, like, uh, we need a Hellraiser 7, Cenobites go to Manhattan. <laughs> Hellraiser Hellworld. Cenobites 7, uh, Cenobites go to FurryCon. Oh, if only. Now, that you might have a movie on your hands with. You might want to call it Bloomhouse. I think they'll pick <laughs> you up on that. Oh, not Bloomhouse. Look, Greg, for some reason, Barb thinks Bloomhouse is doing... Look, I, I, I think don't Bloomhouse like is doing. Bloomhouse. They're doing good work. They're putting out good PG thirteen movies that everyone can enjoy. Bloomhouse is like a really solid. Like it's two a.m. and I want to watch a movie. Like, will I think about this movie again? Maybe not. But it's like a solid way to kill ninety minutes. I still need to see a Happy Death Day, which seems to be the highlight of the Bloomhouse features. It would seem. Okay, Happy Death Day does slap. It's it's like Happy Death Day and Get Out are pretty much like the two best things they've seen. To have Wait, to what the out. fuck? Get Out was Blumhouse? I yep. believe so. That was the production studio for that one. Yeah, it was. Huh? All right, all right. I'll, I'll I'll give them that. I'll give them that. Like Bloom Bloomhouse is bringing back the horror movie. They do they do good stuff. They also did um what's it called the one with the the the, the blind man um don't Maybe. breathe don't I oh I yeah yeah. Ooh, we'll have to get around to that one. Don't don't breathe is a lot I, of fun. I am willing to have my mind changed on Blumhouse. I'll say that much. I am willing to have my mind changed. I, I think you'll enjoy uh, Don't Breathe, or as I like to call it, the increasingly poor decisions of stupid, stupid children. <laughs> uh, don't Breathe actually wasn't Blumhouse. It wasn't? No, it was a uh, Ghost House Pictures. <laughs> yes, I remember now. Because that movie has like... I have like six or seven um, studio intro thingies. You know, like how they like have the little animation and a jingle. That movie yeah. had so many, and the scariest part of that whole movie is when, like, in the middle of those uh, company logos, it just goes silent. There's a loud slam and a keyhole, and then a skeleton with human eyes looks through the keyholes, and that's I... Ghostbusters Productions. <laughs> I remember. I remember that intro. I like legitimately like it. <laughs> I, that was definitely everybody in the theater's favorite part of that whole movie. I remember that clear as day now that you bring it up. Oh my I saw God. that in a completely empty theater. I was the only one in there. Holy <laughs> shit. God, it's been a while since I've seen a movie in an empty theater. I, I, I think we saw that one early enough that the theater was still mostly full, and it was, thankfully it wasn't like mostly teens, because I'm pretty sure that was a PG-13-er, but... Um, it was full enough where people were getting the right amount of scared as they should, but legit, nobody was as scared as they were when the Ghost House logo showed up. <laughs> this was this was when I was still living in rural Iowa. So, like, this was, I think, the week it came out, but, like, I no one was there. <laughs> the closest I ever got to a legit empty theater experience was um, I saw The Shape of Water in a theater that was empty except for this one old man eating popcorn really fucking loud behind me. <laughs> I hope he enjoyed it. I love that movie. Oh, I love that fucking movie, but that old yeah, man was too. eating the popcorn so loud. Me too. I'll get us back at the topic of Hellraiser in a second, but I, <laughs> I still love... I have a friend, and he actually watched The Shape of Water on an airplane, and I, I was... I, I had been bugging him for months to see that movie, and I was like, ah, oh, how'd you like it? How'd you like it? I was like, that was pretty cool. And it was like, yeah, I mean, like, can you believe in a movie about, like... A Hispanic lady feeding a fish man her masturbation eggs won like best picture, and he's like, "Excuse me, what kind of eggs?" And I'm like, 
her, the eggs. It's like one of the biggest parts. The movie opens up with that, and he's like, I don't remember that. And I was like, oh, yeah, you watched a t- you watched an airplane edit of what is otherwise a very horny movie. You should not watch that movie horny. again. <laughs> oh, it's like, God. it's illegally horny. I, but like in a great way. It, it, it should be obvious why that movie is a fucking influence on me. God damn, that movie is horny. I, I do think the airplane edit did still keep the shot of him eating the cat, though. Like, I, I, I basically was just grilling him and like, was this in the movie? Was this in the movie? And pretty much any of like the hot and heavy stuff got cut out. But thankfully, uh, they did keep in the shot of um, her explaining how that dick worked, though. Good. God, that scene is so funny. God. We gotta, we gotta talk about that one at some point, too. In, in my book, that counts as horror. That's, That's horror, Jason. Horror. We're, we're talking For about sure. it. We're talking about it. Um, to, to, round, to round out uh, Hellraiser, though, I did want to talk a little bit about the, the last chunk of the movie, like the chunk of the movie that is about um, Kirsty, where it kind of it kind of stops being this, this psychosexual uh, body horror flick, and it really does become, it does become just like a last girl story, like it veers in a very um, kind of nightmare on Elm Street territory where for a hot second there's this element of her being tormented with these horrifying images. Like, there's like she works at a pet shop and there's this homeless man that stalks her and her boyfriend walking home one night and he shows up and just starts eating crickets in the store without saying anything. <laughs> Yo, those, that fucking crunch, though. That fucking crunch. It was the crickets that like get stuck in his beard. That that was what was like. I, I don't know if I like this. <laughs> I he's he's saving them for later. It did get me though because um, I I remembered I remembered that dude after the first time he shows up because he's just staring through a hole in the wall at them and makes direct eye contact with Kirsty so that when he shows up later, I'm definitely like I was wondering when that guy was gonna show up again, and then he leaves and disappears into nothingness. And um, at the end of the movie, when Kersey eventually does survive the whole ordeal and burns down the house, I thought, and that's the end of that movie. And then he shows up walking to the flames, and I'm like, oh, right, we gotta resolve that with this guy first. I completely forgot about what he turns into. So when that scene happens, I'm like, Jesus Christ. Like, <laughs> like If I recall correctly, that scene only existed because, like, three quarters of the way through production like for the most part the movie was made on a fucking shoestring budget oh, but it like, feels like it but like three quarters of the way through production they got a windfall of money because the the um, production company was like oh shit this is actually pretty good what the fuck and <laughs> they they gave him a bunch of money that's how we got the um the rebirthing scene at the beginning there and if i'm remembering correctly um, that is the reason that Skeleton Monster exists as well. It was just a last-minute, fuck, we gotta burn this cash kind of situation. It, and it feels that way. <laughs> there, It's just like, the end is just like, yeah, like, we might as well. You know, we already had, like, Christy, like, ghost bust each one of the <laughs> scene fights individually. Let's just throw in a dragon. But you and know I... what? The real true horror of that last scene, the real thing that just sticks with me after all this time, is fucking Steve's ugly goddamn shirt. I like that shirt. I liked it. <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same page, because I was like, I'd wear that. Yeah, I was really into it, because, like, her boyfriend is, like, kind of totally, a, like, a lot of things in this movie, he is kind of a waste of skin, because, um, first of all, he's kind of the one who pushes... Like, He's kind of the one who pushes Larry into the nail when they're moving that bed up the stairway. He had very bad moving no, technique. No, that, that's, that's not him. That's uh, that's that's just like some random mover, right? Yeah, no, that, was, that, that was just no, those there, random guys that were no, like... There, there, there's a random mover, and then the boyfriend is there too, right? The, Am I no, the, bo- the boyfriend was not there. She met him at the dinner party. Then shit, that one mover just looks exactly like him then. No, that's he just what didn't, boys look like in the 80s. <laughs> He looks like what's his face from Karate Kid. <laughs> I, I can I can see it. I can see what you're saying, but no, I'm pretty sure also, those are different people. F- fucking Larry being completely oblivious to these guys just straight up eye fucking his wife, well, I mean, like geez. right in front of him. 
Yeah, and she's just giving them beer, and they don't work until they have beer, which, again, you got a lawsuit on your hands right there. <laughs> no, you know what? I, I do like how she doesn't bring them beer. Yeah. Well... She's like, yeah, there's there's beer in the fridge. <laughs> and then she just, like, goes upstairs. I'm like, yeah, you guys have hands. <laughs> and, they, and they just don't move. It's like, you said there was beer. Either we get beer or we go home. Like, they, they just don't move until they get that beer. <laughs> Oh, I also do want to mention Reed Kirsty. That like, she does have like the most conventional part of the movie, which is like a little bit of a bummer. Mm-hmm. That like, once she becomes a main character, we kind of go into like more classic '80s horror nonsense. Yeah, like there's that whole thing that every '80s movie has, where it's like the director slash writer just really doesn't trust institutionalized medicine and she just gets like pretty much taken to a hospital that's treated more like a jail than it is a hospital and then like you have a lot of like the creepy imagery of like oh the iv drip is turning to blood and the doors are locked and the doctor's here to help you but they're just pumping you full of drugs like there's like a definitely like a little bit of that going on and a lot of her um just running around being scared and trying not to get taken by things. Yeah, and, like, we even get the good old 80s horror trope of just, like, psychic teenager to an extent. Like, she has, like, visions just out of nowhere, too. And I'm like, all right, I like it. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's come from the same place that gives her, like, the brain power to solve that uh, that puzzle so freaking fast at the end like the, dude the, is it even a puzzle like it doesn't look hard i was wondering <laughs> about that because like it seems like okay well these guys these cenobites have clearly been in the business for centuries possibly even millennia and like there's this element like you see frank at the beginning of the movie and he's like no even he doesn't struggle with the puzzle he pushes a button and the puzzle essentially solves itself and at the end of the movie she's getting chased around this house by the cenobites and like, a piece of the puzzle will just kind of pop up, and it's like, hey, if you want that guy to go, just push this down. And she pushes it down and just sends them away in animated lightning every time. Like, it's... It's, it's Can it's we talk about the animated lightning? Absolutely. I, I... One of my favorite things about um, older... Like, effects in older movies, particularly, like, you know, 70s, 80s, early 90s, is I do love... How, generally speaking, um, if they obviously didn't have the budget for, like, higher effects or even possibly early CG effects, they would often just straight up traditionally animate all, like, crazy-ass lightning and sparks and various magical glowy bits. And Like Gremlins too. Yeah. And I... <laughs> personally feel like in horror especially supernatural horror that um strange otherworldly vibe that you know that overlaying 2d animation over you know live action can give you i think that quality of it actually suits the genre really nicely yeah i like it's it's something i miss personally it's very comforting to see that in movies i'm I'm very comforted by the sight of just good animated lightning effects. Um, speaking of the lightning effects, I think, Barb, maybe you can talk more about this, but I looked it up, and uh, in the novella, like, none of that happens. Like, the movie just ends after uh, Frank gets taken. Yeah, pretty much just ends. Um, I, th- I think they really just wanted to have a little more of a stinger at the end in the actual film. Um, yeah. One change from it's a change both from the book and a change from the initial um, screenplay that what not Wes Craven, uh, Clive Barker wrote. I always confuse those two in my head. They they, they exist it. in the same space in my brain. Um, but one thing that was changed is um, the actor that played Frank um, improvised that very last line of. Um, Jesus wept. And what what he was originally supposed to say, according to the script, was, Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a little funny, but obviously, Jesus wept is so much more fucking metal. Just so melodramatic and shut up. (laughs) It's like, whatever. 
I mean, I, I, guess, he's, I guess he's like already established as like both this weird, uh, this weird pagan sex freak and also a Jesus freak because that house is full of Jesus paraphernalia when they first find it. Yeah, I didn't really know what to do with that. I was just like, all right, like this is fine, I guess. It almost felt like, uh, almost kind of like, like the actress, like the movie, the actresses passed through the house and accidentally left behind a subplot <laughs> that that Hellraiser just didn't pick up along the way. It was, it was kind of odd. That's the kind of thing I would love to kind of hear. Maybe if there's like any, if there's like a commentary track out there with Clive Barker talking about why all that Jesus stuff is there, I'd I'd love to kind of see what was the reason behind that because it, and maybe it was the point of it. It just kind of seems like a world in which. There is no there is no being saved by a Christ like figure in that world. It felt like, yeah, I, that that was definitely something that was I think unique to Hellraiser two is that like usually in these kind of movies where there is a explicitly supernatural and explicitly hellish um, antagonist, usually there is going to then be. Um, it's going to be pushing some flavor of, you know, you just got to pray hard enough and you got to believe in Jesus and he'll save you from the demons. And this movie completely lacked that. There was no, at no point was, was like Kirsty or anyone like, hey, maybe I should pray to Jesus. Maybe that'll help. Nope. Not once. Thanks. Nah, man, the only thing that'll save you are those sick Rubik's Cube-solving skills. Also, yeah. one um, one little tidbit that I was kind of wondering about, um, like, as I was watching it, because I didn't notice it before, was but um, that Frank's voice doesn't entirely lo- feel like it lines up with his... Um, lips not as in like it's poorly lip sick or something but like there's just it feels slightly off and i was looking up you know factoids after watching it this time and like stuff in the production and um originally uh, and straight up they did dub over frank's voice in the american release of the movie yeah i think and they dubbed over a lot of the actors because um it was filmed in britain and they kind of uh restaged it to kind of come off as anywhere mid-Atlantic USA, so that meant just dubbing over a lot of the more British-sounding voices. Yeah. Oh, thank God. <laughs> you, you, thank I'm you. An- thank you. I agree. I can't stand the Brits. <laughs> Get those Brits out of here. Let's see those Brits exit out of here, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um. Oh, also another Kirsty thing that, like, I don't have anything to say about, but in the book, like, she's just uh, Larry's friend who's in love with him. <laughs> and then they change her into his daughter. Hmm. I, th- I think like, that makes that's... sense in the context of the movie. I feel like um, in the book, I kind of had a little difficulty um, following exactly who the fuck she was and what she had to do with him. Yeah. Whereas in the movie, I think it's so much easier to accept her presence in all of these situations when you just accept that, okay, daughter. Yeah, it it makes sense on a storytelling perspective, but then at the same time, I'm still just like, I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I, like it, I guess it gets her motivation to go back because of like, if she was just a friend, there's no way you would just go into a literal hell house to save your friend, but there's this element to it of like going in there to save her dad and... I guess she thinks her mom until her mom turns at her at the last second, but well, yeah. she she's never liked Julia. It looks like yeah, it, it, it also brings more meaning to the whole um, you know come to daddy thing. Yeah, it definitely makes yeah. that line hit a lot harder. I hate that scene. <laughs> I hate that line. Come so, to daddy. I, I do, I do, I was really into just how much Frank was playing it up at a certain point, though. I, I, I guess there's an element of him, he started off as a crazy person, and he just did go mad by the time he got to the end, to the point where I even know what he wanted, because he does just end up ganking Julia at the end, and he's just like, it's nothing personal, and it's like, I guess he just wanted to get it back to life, he didn't, 
care whether or not Julia came with him. He's just in it for himself now to get away from the Cenobites. I mean, pretty much in the um, in the novella, that is how it went. Like the, the, there was a point where um, you know you got to see into his thoughts and his reasoning, and his logic basically was, eh, "I'll stick with Julia till I've got skin, and maybe we fuck a little bit, but I'll ditch her, whatever." You guys have any other thoughts on uh, the last little dregs of movie left? Mm. I will at least say that uh, going back to that last shot of the uh, the the hobo taking the box, um, I kind of wish he didn't turn to a dragon because I think a kind of cooler way for it to end would be that. Um, he just was some freak that knew they had the box, and he took the box for his own uh, desires. And just, I would have loved this kind of motif of like the box exiting one person's life and entering another. But I mean, I guess the movie did end that way. But I would have just kind of liked it if somebody found the box instead of being a demon taking it back to whence it came. Okay, but like- consider this: then you wouldn't have big sick metal drug. You could just have the dragon anyway. You could have the you could have the guy you could have the guy pick up the box, solve it, and then the dragon comes and takes him away. Yeah. <laughs> At which uh. point the movie does Iris L into the box itself to cut to credits. <laughs> uh, Greg, you were gonna say something? Oh uh, no, I think like thematically, like I love the ending of Hellraiser just because it's bonkers. But I think thematically, the novella ending like works more, where like. We talked about how the the Cenobites are just kind of these, they're just like hanging out. They're like bureaucrats. They, you know, fulfill their contract and leave. Like at the end of the novella, they're like, all right, like, hey, Kirsty, like, we don't want you. We got Frank, so we're just going to leave. Like, (laughs) hang on to this. Goodbye. (laughs) And I kind of like that. Like, they're not, they're not like, like, they're, you know, they're like BDSM heads, but they're not like, sadists in terms of like they're not like a slasher villain yeah Yeah. like you you solved the puzzle so they came (laughs) it's as simple as that you know they're just all right so i think that's gonna do it that was hellraiser um i i i liked it i actually liked it a lot i think it's i think it's good horror um I think it's, uh, hmm, I'm trying to think about how I would kind of set up my thoughts on this one, because, like, I really like the imagery of it, and I do really kind of like the first, I like the first two acts thematically, like, like I said, I, I love the body horror of Frank needing a body, and I love the second half of, like, this unhappy housewife essentially learning how to murder, um, those two parts of the movie I was totally into, but definitely the third part, aside from the Cenobites showing up and stealing the show with how bizarrely low-key they are, like, that last part honestly could have been any slasher from the 80s, and that's definitely where it kind of slips up a bit, but those first two parts are so, so strong that's absolutely worth the price of admission. What do y'all think? No, I, I agree. I think it's super compelling and weird, 
that it's just like a domestic drama and then there's just like some weird horror stuff kind of informing the world um and the last part is fun like again it really is contained to like 20 minutes so i think it's just like a fine shot of adrenaline mm-hmm. um, that's just like not what i remember about the movie um no i i agree with greg where like um there's definitely bits i like about um that last 20 minutes it's not it's nothing unlikable like period it's just it is very much still a enjoyable and entertaining sequence but all aside from like that very last bit of frank getting torn to shreds aside from that um no i agree with both of you like that those first two like two-thirds three-quarters of the movie are where all the stuff that really stays with you happens and a lo- it, there are a lot of things that stay with you like it, it is like i feel like sometimes with horror movies you can kind of have like a one scene wonder where it's like you might have one really good scene and then the rest of the movie kind of just leans on it on as a crutch whereas i feel like for the most part this movie really it feels extremely complete if that makes any sense yeah Yeah. it's a tightly knit puzzle box (laughs) all right so yeah um that's going to do us for this episode of a scary podcast to tell in the dark um sounds like we really enjoyed hellraiser maybe you might too if you're into that kind of thing you sick twisted freak um yeah uh barb have you got you got any anything going on that you want to you want to shout out or uh direct listeners to right now um so i i guess the big thing that for me to announce which is also uh horror adjacent is um i i can't remember whether i mentioned it last time so i'll just mention it again um i have started production on a sequel to my short film from 2016 the hitchhiker um so i am I am working on putting out another short film like that. Uh, this one's going to involve a werewolf. So if you like werewolves and you think stuff like that is fun, and it will have a badass transformation sequence, that is the goal, whether it kills me or not. But if that sounds <laughs> cool, hey, give my work a follow. Check me out on Patreon. Um, that's, a, that's the best way to like support me and help it along in production. Is it going to have any uh, werewolves doing handstands on top of vans? No. How about werewolves playing basketball? There's going to be a werewolf working with some things that are basketball-sized. How about if the werewolf is playing basketball, but you look very closely in the background, you can see a man taking off his coat and revealing his dick? Yes. All right, good. Good to know. (laughs) (laughs) uh greg how about you you got anywhere that um listeners can find you or anything you want to shout out uh if you really want to you can find me at on twitter aw gregor but like i have nothing going on stream carly ray jepson i don't know yeah you you, you write awesome horror reviews you're always you're what you watch so many fucking horror movies and you have such good write-ups on them all i I do nothing but consume garbage so if you're into like fall if like if you have letterboxd you can definitely you know find me on there but i've been trying to do more horror stuff and like write more about it but right now i don't really have anything to shill (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm just here i'm just here for the ride all right man of your scruples i appreciate that i respect that greg's just here for the box truly (laughs) we opened the box so he came (laughs) and uh I'm John Charles. You can find me on Twitter at Sonic9JCT. Uh, I sometimes draw comics or t-shirts. Um, I spend a lot of time being disappointed in America and making that disappointment very clear. <laughs> so if you want to see my depressed ramblings about that, that's where you go for that. But hey, you might sometimes see like a cute picture of like Princess Peach or something. Why not? Take those chances. Roll those dice. Throw them bones. Um, as, as I mentioned in uh, previous episodes, too, uh, we are still open to taking uh, your guys' letters. If you have any co- comments, questions, observations for us, uh, you can tweet at us on Twitter at ScaryDarkPod, or you can also email us at ScaryDarkPod at gmail.com. Um, we're saving up those uh, questions. We already got some really good ones in, so when we have our n- nice and neat focused little mailbag episode we're gonna have some awesome answers for you guys just feel free to ask us any questions you have about 
horror, about the movies we've watched, about stuff you think we might enjoy watching, anything of the sort. We'd love to talk about it some more. Um, yeah, I I think that's probably going to do us for tonight. What do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for chatting. Of course, of course. I'd like to uh, send us off with a uh, one quick little thing, quick little question. Uh, sure. Um, what does a Cenobite use to shave? Uh, um, a Hellraiser. Ah, uh, see, see, I, I would have gone for uh, what? Hey, wait where, a minute! That's the name of the movie. <laughs> Which, what's, when, that's, when that's a, what makes it funny. When a when a Cenobite goes to the mall, <laughs> where's the first place he's gonna stop? A hot topic. No, he's gonna stop at the uh, Cinnabon. No, fuck you. I'm with Greg. Hot topic. <laughs> I mean, it just it feels like they would go to Hot Topic. I'd go to Hot Topic. You know, honestly, I think maybe they actually would go more to Claire's, where they can just get as many things as they want pierced. I mean, they'll they'll pierce anything at Claire's. Uh, you know what? Anything. That's right. You're correct. What if, you, what if you went to fucking under 21 and you saw Butterball? You mean Forever 21? Oh, Forever 21. I thought... <laughs> under 21. Yes. That's a fucked up name. Also, uh, I think they went out of business. <laughs> oh, no. I don't, I don't, don't, don't go me on that. So I guess they weren't Forever 21. Wow. Hey, well, thank God they're not under 21. Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right, guys. Good night. Butterball would go to a place called under 21. Far right. no. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>